Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. Genesis 17 is on page page 7 of your paperback Bibles. It will help you greatly if you have a Bible open as we go through this text. I don't think uh, anyone would deny the importance of promises. Seems like the more profound or important an occasion is, the more likely there's some kind of promise involved. Think of marriage. Two people get married, they express their vows to each other. What they're doing is making promises to be faithful to each other. Somebody gives testimony in a court of law. What does that person do? That that person promises to tell the truth. Uh, If you take out a large sum of money as a loan, you're going to sign a lot of papers. And those papers are your way of making a promise that you're going to pay that money back. Promises show up all over the place in our daily lives. We value promises. Some of us have been hurt by promises unfulfilled. So this is true. How much more central or how much more important should promises play when it comes to the relationship of the creator of the universe with his creatures? Promises play a prominent role in the way God relates to us the way we relate to him. And when I say this, I'm not primarily thinking of the promises that you have made to God, the promises that you've made to do better, to try harder, and to never do this or that again. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the promises that God has made to you. That's the central aspect of the gospel that we're going to be talking about here today, God's promises, and those promises as they take their form in the way of what is called a covenant. Covenant. This is uh, a phrase, a word that shows up uh, frequently in the scriptures, and while a covenant is certainly bigger, larger than a promise, they're not exactly one and the same, nonetheless at the heart of the covenant is promise. And so we are going through this sermon series here at New Life on the life of Abraham. What we're really doing is just going through the whole book of Genesis. And uh, here in these chapters between 12 and 25, we're focusing on Abraham's life. Uh, Last week, we spent some time just thinking about Ishmael and his significance, particularly the descendants of Ishmael. This chapter today does touch on Ishmael. We're just going to kind of skip by that because we dealt with him last week. So uh, just FYI there. But the main topic, the main central focus of Genesis 17 is, is the covenant. And it's a bit of a lengthy chapter. So if you're able, and you can stand for a few minutes, let me ask you to stand. If you want to remain seated, that's okay. But I'm going to read this entire chapter to us. As we think about what the scriptures tell us about this interesting topic called covenant. Okay, Genesis 17.1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. And said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face 
And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be your name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, was, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Holy Spirit, please come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So at the heart of this concept of covenant, and as I read that, hopefully you picked up on just the number of times that word showed up, uh, a lot of repetition in that chapter. We don't need to cover every single verse because of that. 
Um, but at the heart of this idea of covenant is, is a promise. And the two major things that God has promised to Abraham are, number one, descendants. And so you see that in verse 4. Uh, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. From Abraham is going to come descendants who are going to populate many nations. So there's a promise of descendants. And there's also a promise of land. If you look at verse 8, I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan. So these are the two parts of this promise people coming from Abraham, but also a land for Abraham and his people to dwell. Now, there's a big problem with how this is all going to happen, and that is the fact that Abraham has no child. And we learn at the start of chapter 17 that this is an even bigger problem than maybe you realize, because now it says Abraham, or Abram in this case, was 99 years old or rounded up to 100 elsewhere, it says, Sarah, 90 years old, and yet there's this promise. So this would have been 25 years after the first promise from God to Abraham about the coming promised child. 25 years later. That's what, 1996. I mean, imagine somebody promised you something in 1996, and here it is, 2021, and it still hasn't happened yet. Are you counting on that promise? Has that kind of faded from memory, maybe, a little bit? I mean, imagine how uh, discouraged Abraham must have been. Uh, Imagine how um, hopeless he must have been. Imagine how he must have been thinking, you know what, God hasn't given me a child and it's probably my fault. Because I did all these things wrong. I, you know, had relations with Hagar and I didn't believe God and I've not trusted his promise. His promises probably aren't good for me anymore. He forgot about me. He's probably chosen someone else to make his promises through. And yet what God does is he constantly comes back to Abraham and appears before him and reassures him. It's like God comes after him, encourages him, gives him the promise again. And that's what he's doing again here in Chapter 17, the Lord appeared to Abram. He appears again, and in this case, what he's doing is he's kind of, he's kind of fortifying his promise in a, in a new way, and that is that he's bringing in this idea of covenant. Now, there was a covenant made between Abram and God in chapter 15, so it does kind of show up there, but here in chapter 17, we just get more, more details about this, but this is God's way of encouraging Abraham. Don't give up, Abraham. The promise is still in effect for you. I'm still going to do this, and here's how I'm going to show you I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a covenant with you. Now, you might think, well, what in the world is a covenant? Uh, We just don't use that language a a, a lot, so a guy named Michael Williams defines it this way. A covenant is a relationship between persons begun by the sovereign administration of the greater person in which the greater commits himself to the lesser in the context of mutual loyalty. So that's a lot of verbiage there to take in. A covenant, it's not not really a simple concept, honestly. I mean, if I can break it down as simple as I can, promise. But it's just that doesn't really capture everything. There's more to be said. So there's a, it's a relationship. There's, there's one who is greater than the other. And the sovereign, the greater one, enters into a relationship with the lesser one. Makes promises, commits himself, but then demands mutual loyalty. There are obligations 
on behalf of the ones with whom the covenant has been made. And so what we're going to do here, look through this chapter and just see what, what can we learn about covenants here. I'm not saying everything that could be said about covenants, more that could be said, but I've limited to uh, four things here. Not three things. Four things that we can learn. <laughs> Feeling risky today. Four things to learn about covenants from chapter 17. First of all, covenants show the sovereignty of God. Covenants show the sovereignty of God. So you notice how this begins. God appears to Abram and announces. He identifies himself. This is the way covenants often begin. The, the greater comes and says, here, this is who I am. And so that's what God says. I am God Almighty. And the Hebrew word here is El Shaddai. Maybe you've heard that word. There are different names used for God to capture different aspects of his essence. El Shaddai means all-powerful. All powerful belongs, all power belongs to God. And so he identifies himself here as El Shaddai, capturing his sovereignty. And he initiates now this conversation with Abraham in verse 2. And notice how he says this. Um, he appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. But I want you to notice very carefully what that says. That I may make my covenant. This is God's covenant. God is the one who initiates the covenant. He's the one who designs the covenant. He's the one who administers the covenant. He's the one who sets the terms of the covenant. And he comes to us and says, this is the way it is. This isn't some kind of negotiating process. Abram's not bartering with God. They're not working together to come to a terms of agreement. That's why a covenant's not quite the same as a contract. Very often, contracts work that way. You know, we, we talk back and forth and we come to an agreement. No, this is God's covenant. And he tells Abram, this is how it's going to be. Uh, I read a, a pastor kind of gave an illustration by saying that sometimes when people consider God or they consider the Bible, considering Christianity, that they kind of approach it as if God is applying for the job of personal deity for them. And we're, we've received God's resume, and we're kind of checking out what he's like, and we're going to make a decision as to whether he meets our needs. And if we don't really like the terms, well, we'll find another God who makes us happier or fits better with what we expect. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not bartered with and negotiated with. He is sovereign, and he comes with his covenant, and he says these are the terms, like it or not, Abram. Well, we see other aspects of God's sovereignty here. He changes names of people. God is so sovereign when he makes a covenant, he, he changes their names. Verse 5, no longer shall your name be Abram, he says, but your name shall be Abraham. So finally, throughout the rest of this sermon series, I can start saying Abraham instead of going back and forth between Abram and Abraham. Your name shall be Abraham. Abram uh, means exalted father. Abraham means father of multitudes. So uh, it's not so much in our culture the case, but in ancient culture, your name said a lot about who you were, what your role and function was. And so you, know, you can see that very clearly at the end of verse 5, after renaming Abram Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's what Abraham means, father of a multitude of nations. 
Um, And later, verse 15, if you want to skip down, verse 15, you see that God in his sovereignty does this with Sarai as well. Uh, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, Sarai means princess, and Sarah means princess. So there's really no change in meaning here, so I'm not really sure why the name is changed, but more significantly, God's been giving his promises through Abraham, and so that's where the name change is. So we see, uh, we, we see this um, aspect of God's sovereignty in, in changing names. You know, sometimes people change their names. You know, I read last week that Kanye West just changed his name. Um, so his name is Yi, just Y-E. That, that's his legal name now. Um, you remember Ron Artest? He played for the Indiana Pacers years ago, went on to the Lakers. He was Ron Artest. He changed his name to Meta World Peace. And um, I think like last year, he actually changed his name again. So his name is slightly different now. Um, so in a sense, those are, I guess, examples of sovereignty. They, they change their names. But, but these men didn't change the name of somebody else. They don't have that kind of sovereign power. But God does. He changes people's names. And when you become a Christian, he changes you and he makes you his own. You are his child. You belong to him. He claims you. He has sovereignty over you. And you belong to him. So as God enters into this covenant, we see his sovereignty in even one more area. And that is right after God speaks to Sarai, or now Sarah, He gives his promise again. He reiterates what he's been saying. And in verse 16, he says, I will bless Sarah, and I will give give you a son by her. So there's the promise again. So God's saying, I haven't forgotten this. You are going to have a son, and this son is going to be through Sarah. You might remember I mentioned that maybe Abraham took Hagar, thinking that the promise was only through Abraham and not necessarily through Sarah. Maybe it could be through Hagar. But now God says, nope, it's going to be through Sarah. And in fact, um, verse 19, God even says what his name is going to be. His name is going to be Isaac. And um, end of verse 21, he even gives the time. This is going to happen at this time next year. So friends, we are getting close to finally this promise getting fulfilled. It's about, about a year away. So God reiterates this promise. You're gonna have a son. It's gonna be through Sarah. It's gonna be next year. And how does Abram respond? <laughs> In verse 17, he falls on his face and laughs. <laughs> he laughs. Now, why did he laugh? And people have a lot of different theories about why he laughs. Sarah laughs in chapter 18, and she's going to get rebuked for that. God doesn't rebuke him for this. It might not be the laugh of unbelief, honestly, because later in Romans 4, Paul says Abraham didn't weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. So Abram, at some level, maintained his belief. I don't think this is the laugh of unbelief. But you know, sometimes God's promises to us, they just seem unreal, don't they? They just seem beyond what we can grasp. 
You know, Jesus is going to come again to judge all of humanity? Your bodies are going to be raised up from the grave? We're going to live on a new earth for all eternity with all tears being wiped away? I mean, we believe that, but let's just admit it. It seems a little unreal sometimes. And sometimes all we can do is just kind of, kind of laugh. They just seem too good to be true. But friends, they are true. They are true. Because God is sovereign, and he's able to make them happen. And we're going to see how he makes this happen through Sarah uh, as we continue through Genesis. So that's the first thing. God's our covenants show the sovereignty of God. But here's the second thing that we learn about covenants. Covenants are made with groups. Now, the reason this is important is because we live in a highly individualistic culture, don't we? We generally just think of ourselves. We have iPhones, not Wii phones. These are our way of interacting with the world by ourselves. We're told, do what's best for yourself. Make yourself happy. Follow your dreams. It's about you and you alone. That's not really the way the Bible speaks. The Bible is constantly talking in terms of groups, kind of corporate entities. So look how this happens. In verses 7 through 9, God says, I'm going to establish my covenant between me and you. Okay, yeah, with Abram, sure, but and your offspring after you throughout their generations to be God to you and your offspring after you. It kind of repeats that in verse 8 and 9. He promises uh, the, the land to your offspring, verse 8. Verse 9, um, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Uh, you know, that's the covenant. It's with, it's with not just you, Abram. It's made with your offspring. It's made with all of those descendants who come from you. And so that'll be the nation of Israel, and we'll see God kind of entering into other covenant uh, arrangements with Israel as you go through the Old Testament, but to just to look far off in the future, I've been showing you this a lot, Galatians 3, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. So if you are a believer in Jesus, part of the church of Jesus Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, and the covenant that God is making with Abraham is a covenant made with you and with me and with all the church throughout all the world and throughout all of history. It's not just you. <laughs> It's not a covenant with individuals, it's a covenant with groups. And we see not only the covenant with the church at large or the church universal, but we also see God making this covenant with Abraham's family. So look at the end of verse 12. <clears throat> end of verse 12. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised, so shall my covenant be in your flesh. An everlasting covenant. The covenant is made with Abram's family. It's a covenant with his household. It's a covenant with him and his children. The covenant just doesn't stop with the person who happens to believe. It extends down family lines. So here in the Presbyterian tradition, we, we have a, a strong theology of children. We call our kids covenant children. We, we love this word covenant. We got covenant seminary and covenant college. We call the church the covenant community. And our children are covenant children. That means the children belong here. 
Children, you belong in this place. The church is not just for big people. The church is for little people. And the scriptures tell us in the Old Testament over and over again, there's always commands for how the children ought to be dealt with. Deuteronomy 6, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your, chi- to your children. <clears throat> Psalm 103, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. We go forward to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7. This is the chapter about divorce, and Paul is talking about the way God looks at households if you have a, 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 like a believing husband and an unbelieving wife. And he says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. So an unbelieving husband is considered differently in God's eyes if he has a believing wife. He's like set apart in some way, and the same thing goes the other way around. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And then look what he says. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Your children are holy. That doesn't mean they're saved. It doesn't mean they're saved. It's a word more for like sanctification, being set apart. Your children are set apart, and that's because God's covenant works through households, extends down through family lines. Randy Booth says this, the individualism that sprang from the Renaissance has caused us to lose sight of the biblical concept of the family as a covenantal unit. God not only elects individuals unconditionally, but also works redemptively through households. Friends, have you ever thought of this? When when Jesus talks about conversion, do you know he never says children need to become more like adults. He says adults need to become more like children. It's like children have got it right, spiritually speaking, in many respects. They, They receive what they hear. They believe they, they have a natural inclination to believe, yeah, they're fallen sinners, that's true, yes, but, but they're, they're more ready, it seems, to believe, to be taught. And so I just want to speak to the kids here. I know most of them are at, at uh, Children's Church, but you know, you're welcome here. We, we love you. This is a place for you. You're part of us. You're not outsiders. You're insiders. You belong here, children. We're glad you're here. And to parents, let me say, parents, if you've got young children, Teach them the gospel. Tell them about what Jesus has done. Call them to repentance and faith. Read the scriptures to them. Teach them how to live as a Christian. That's your responsibility. And if you don't teach them, the world will. I guarantee it. The world is seeking to indoctrinate your children. And to those of you who might be Christian parents whose kids are out of the house and perhaps they have wandered from the faith, let me just say, the covenant extends to children and children's children and God is faithful to his covenant. Am I guaranteeing that God's gonna bring them back? I can't can't do that. But this doctrine that I'm telling you, the covenant should give you hope. God's covenant extends through family lines. Let me say one other thing. As a warning, inclusion in the covenant does not guarantee salvation for anyone. So just because you were brought up in a Christian home, just because you were brought up in the, in the Christian church, it doesn't mean that you're saved. It doesn't mean you have an automatic ticket to get to heaven. You also need to repent and believe in what Jesus has done. Receive him as your savior. That's the way you become a Christian. 
We see that just later as Ishmael, then verse 25, we see last week I made the point that Ishmael I don't think is even a believer, and yet he was part of the covenant. So you got a lot of examples of that in the Old Testament. People are part of the covenant, but they rebel against God. They're not believers. There's no guarantee, but God tends to work this way, making his covenant through groups, okay? So next thing, covenants are accompanied by signs. Covenants are accompanied by signs. So let's look at verses 10 through 12. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. There's a covenant, the promise that God has made, and then there's something that comes along and accompanies that covenant, and it's a particular sign, and in this case, the sign is circumcision. So a sign is like just a physical witness to a spiritual reality, you could say. You know, a really good example is a wedding ring. You know, I'm married, I've got a ring here, it's a physical thing, but, I mean, whether I have this ring on my finger or off, I'm still married to my wife. It doesn't make me married to the wife, but it's important, and I've worn it every day since I was married. Uh, It's a sign to my love and commitment to my wife, and marriage is a covenant, right? So, I don't, you know, wedding ring is not a biblical sign, but it makes the point. What we're talking about here is a sign, a physical witness to a spiritual reality. And in this case, in chapter 17, the sign is circumcision. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, Google it. <laughs> um, actually, we get some... Um, I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says here, okay? So verse 11 says, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. Uh, I'm not going to get into great detail here, okay? So circumcision is the removal of the foreskin of a male person. Um, So that's what circumcision is, and that's what what the sign is here. Now, you might ask also, why? (laughs) Why would God require a sign like that? Uh, What's the purpose for requiring circumcision? Well, let's think this through, and and I think it makes more sense as we consider some of the implications of circumcision. I mean, first of all, think about this. How is sin passed on down generational lines? I mean, it's through procreation, right? Man and husband, man man and wife have uh, relations, They bear children, and sin is passed down through procreation. So as the foreskin is removed, it's like a symbol of an interruption of the flow of sin. Or, think of it this way. How is it that the promise that God has been making to Abraham is going to be fulfilled? Also through procreation. Abram's going to have relations with Sarah, and Sarah is going to bear a child. And so you can see how the cutting off of the foreskin points to procreation in the positive or redemptive way as well. And so as you go through the rest of the scriptures, you'll see that there is this spiritual significance that shows up around circumcision. So for instance, Jeremiah 4 says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. 
So this foreskin idea is applied to the heart, that our hearts are hardened, that our hearts are full of sin, and what God wants is that to be removed so that our hearts are changed and different. Same in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. There's the emphasis on children again, descendants, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Circumcision seems to point to this change of heart, this kind of regeneration of the heart, kind of an interruption of the flow of sin. It's pointing to redemption, friends. And think about this one other item here regarding circumcision. One thing we know about circumcision is that it involves pain and it involves the shedding of blood. And we have a Savior who came, suffered for us, shed his blood, in order to change our hearts and make us right with him. So in this way, circumcision points to the gospel. It's not just a marker of being part of the nation of Israel. There's a deep spiritual significance to this. Now let me say, okay, no. So, so who, who gets this sign, circumcision? To whom does this sign, is this sign given? Verse 24 tells us that Abram, Abraham himself was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. So Abraham was circumcised as a sign of the covenant because he believed. So is that where it ends? Is anybody else circumcised? Who else? Well, look at verse 12 again. It says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations Eight days old, that's an infant. Why eight days? Probably because after one full week has passed, beginning of the next week. The infant is circumcised. So we here in the Presbyterian tradition believe that baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. And so let me just say this one thing, because this is introducing another kind of a big topic, but very often it's, it's asked to us, why do you baptize infants when they don't know what's going on? They're too young. They don't understand baptism. Why are you baptizing them? Just notice here, friends, that this command, direct command from God is to give the sign of the covenant to infants who don't know what's going on at eight days old. And again, if you say, yeah, but this is just, all, this is just ethnic. This is just because they're members of the nation of Israel. That's all that's about. No, no, it's not. Look what Paul says in Romans 4, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, even while he was still uncircumcised. I mean, that's the gospel. Abraham believed, righteousness was credited to him, and that's the significance of circumcision for him. Replaced now by baptism, but I simply say that to answer that common question about why would you give the sign to an infant? Well, there's there's precedent here in Genesis 17 for that happening. So covenants are accompanied by signs. One more thing, covenants also require obedience. Covenants require obedience. At the heart of the covenant is promise. God's been making all these promises. He has promised a child, that's Isaac. He promised he'd build a great nation from Isaac, that's Israel. He promised a Savior will come from Israel. That's Jesus. 
He promised that all families on the earth would be blessed. That's Gentiles. That's you. That's me. Salvation comes from the Lord. This is all God and his promise from start to finish. But look at verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you. It's like, hmm, it's not just about God's promises. It looks like Abraham has a responsibility too. You shall keep my covenant, he says. Your responsibility is to keep the covenant. In fact, go back to verse 1, and God makes it very specific. Walk before me. Be blameless. Be blameless and not be perfect. It's just live a life that is patterned after godliness and righteousness. And notice what Abraham does. Verse 26 that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, all the men of the house, who's born, uh, those born in the house, those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised. In other words, God, uh, Abraham did exactly what God told him to do. Abraham obeyed. That's part of the obligation. Obedience to God. Now, what am I saying here? Am I saying that we're saved by obedience? Is that, is that what the covenant means? God does his part, you do your part, and let's just hope you do well enough? No, that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what the covenant means. Let me remind you, friends, if we go back to chapter 15, verse 6, remember when God made the promise to Abraham, and it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's when Abraham was saved. It doesn't say... Abraham, be obedient to my covenant, and I will credit to you as righteousness. It doesn't say that. It says, believe, and I will credit to you as righteousness. And then, later, God says to Abraham, now you must obey me. The gospel comes first. Grace comes first. Abraham's not saved by his obedience. It's by faith. Faith alone. Only belief in what God has promised and what God has done. The same is true for you. Your salvation is not based on your obedience, but by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for you in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. In other words, once again, friends, being a Christian is not making promises to God, but receiving the promise that he's made to you. And the promise is just this. Repent and believe. Trust Jesus. Take him as your Savior. And his righteousness will be imputed to you, credited to you. Your sins will be wiped away and you will belong to him forever. And that good news is what will give you then the strength, the motivation, the encouragement to walk before him and to be blameless. And when you fail and you don't walk so well this day and you're not so blameless that day, you go back to the gospel and you confess your sins to him and trust that he is faithful to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all righteousness, and you get up and you walk again. But nobody is saved by obedience, only by faith in Jesus, and that is the essence and fulfillment of the covenant. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage that is perhaps complex, but Lord, we know it's full of truth of your gracious, kind promises Thank you for covenanting with us. Thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling all the requirements of the covenant for us. And Lord, please, by your spirit, help us to walk with you and be blameless all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.